Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. And uh, what I wanted to kind of talk to you guys tonight about is a, a passage from 1 Kings 17, another situation in Elijah's life where God is preparing him for the times that he lives in. And that's what we're trying to do at Iron Sharpens Iron for the guys. And quite frankly, most of the, the, the lessons and st- sermons I'm giving is to prepare us for the times that are coming ahead. And we've talked about how difficult things might become. Uh, last night we talked about at the Wednesday night about a digital currency that seems to be on its way. Uh, we see um, all kinds of weird stuff happening with China and Russia and um, just... Um, and understanding what's going on with Israel um, and Iran, and that situation is very volatile. So, like, we're on the verge of, like, World War III or something, man. It's some, some serious stuff going on, not only abroad, but here in, in the nation. And um, so what we, we're trying to do is look at these passages and see how we can prepare as men to deal with what's coming, because life is not going to get easier it's actually going to get very hard, and, um, and we're going to learn through Elijah how to do that and what test the Lord put him through in order to get to that level that he needed to be at. So if you recall with Elijah, this is the scene before we're, what we're going to study, is he's already announced to King Ahab that, hey, dude, uh, because of the wickedness of you and your wife, uh, which is Jezebel, okay, um, there's not going to be any rain for three years. And so he makes this announcement, and then the Lord immediately tells him, I need you to go at the brook Cherith, and I'm going to take care of you there, and I'm going to feed you with ravens, and you're going to drink from the brook. And at, at that point, he's starting to learn that God can provide at that level. That's one of the tests of, of being able to handle hard times, is you have to be able to trust that God can provide. So he learns this lesson, and that's the scene that we're going to leave, but that's where he's at right now. He's at the brook Kareth, and the brook dries up. And, and so he's going to enter into a little bit more difficult time where the Lord's going to take him. And that's kind of where I saw the same thing that what we're going through is, okay, we have passed the test. The big test was the stupid lockdowns and the COVID shutdowns. And that was a big test, by the way. That really showed what side of the fence people were on in terms of churches shutting down or opening their doors, churches pushing the vaccine and and stupid things like that, right? And, And so we saw that. That was a test. And quite frankly, a lot of the church didn't pass the test, okay? I'm not, ask, I'm not saying that they're not forgiven, but when tests come and you have the ability to prove yourself and you don't prove yourself, that stays on your record, so to speak. You can be forgiven of that, but that was a big mess up. So if you can't pass that test, how are you going to pass the bigger tests is what I'm thinking about with these other churches, right? How are they going to pass what's coming? The good news is you guys have passed the test already. You understood what happened. You see it from perspective. Good. That's a spiritual test. But now the Lord's taking us to a different place 
to test us even further to prepare for what's coming. Worse than COVID shutdowns, worse than the vaccines, something really is on the, uh, the, the verge of changing our whole entire lives with an economic meltdown, with a, a digital currency, and, or World War III happening, or whatnot. Um, the stuff that's coming out, like for instance, I don't know if you heard the latest about a lot of the stuff coming out of the Biden administration and their ties with China. I don't know if you're following that. I'm telling you what, man, we have leaders in our country that are simply traitors. They're, they're just traitors, and they're, they're selling us out to China and different, uh, you know, the, the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and all that. And I'm looking at that, I'm like, wow. And these guys are never going to go to jail, by the way. Never. And nothing seems to be stopping what they're doing. And uh, the surveillance that, that, that China has is a picture of the kind of surveillance we're going to have and all kinds of weird stuff. So how are we going to be able to pass that test? Well, first of all, we've got to understand that things are not going to get easier for us. They're going to get harder. And uh, that's not a fun picture to look at because, you know, I could sell this better if I said, you're going to have your best life now and everything's going to be wonderful and everything's going to be hunky-dory for you. Don't worry about anything. But then I, that doesn't prepare you for, for, for much. It just says, you're fine the way you are. And what I'm trying to tell you and tell myself is, we are not fine the way we are if what's coming is coming. If that's coming, I need to step up my game. I need to get ready for what's happening. And so this is the, the thing. We have the problem of the rise of soy boys in our culture, but also in our churches. And this is what I think has been going on for some time now, is this feminization of men, and it's crept into the church. So the, 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 new, the new way to be a male, and you see this a lot with these males, is that they act feminine, they, they, they will not take a spiritual role of leadership at all, they're passive in everything they do, and quite frankly, they're not leaders. They don't know how to lead. They're good followers, but look who they follow. Fauci, that's the guy you're going to follow? And so we have this rise of soy boys in, in the, the culture, but also in the church. And I mean, this is the new male, right? This is the new celebrated male. The gutless wonder that has been castrated by his wife. And he's nothing but a spiritual eunuch, right? Now remember, I'm in the, the story of Jezebel, right? Who did Jezebel surround herself with? Eunuchs. Her husband was Casper Milktoast. She could pretty much tell him anything he wanted to do, and he would do it. So he, he's the, a soy boy. But then she surrounded himself with men that had been castrated. And I want you to let that sink in because it's a spiritual lesson of spiritual castration. What's happened to the males in the church, in the, na- in the nation, is they've been spiritually castrated because they think being a male is like being... Uh, a beta male, that that's a sign of a, a nurturing male and this and that. And it's nothing it's, uh, that the Bible says is masculine. And so they've turned men into femininity and saying that's the new norm, that's the new masculinity. And people are buying into this. 
So you have pictures like this, you know, the triumph of the beta male. Yeah, I, I, that's true. That's what's happened in our culture. The, the beta male has triumphed. That's what the culture likes. So when you and I come into the picture, they call us toxic males, right? That's the problem, but we're just acting biblical. I'm not acting like a, a caveman. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm acting like a biblical male. And then that's scary to them. That threatens them. They would prefer beta males because beta males are easy to control. And there's all kinds of things. 15 signs you're a beta male online if you want to look at that. Um, but this is your typical beta male in his pajamas, drinking his coffee or drinking his uh, latte chai and, and sitting there useless. Just absolutely, can, this kind of person can't do anything. So what we're looking for is men that are like Elijah. I don't know if you know a little bit about Elijah's background. But he comes from a, a, a very difficult area to grow up in. And what you'll notice about some of the best leaders that, Bible, that God picks in the Bible is sometimes they come from very difficult circumstances. Where, where Elijah lived, he lived out in the desert, a very desert climate. It wasn't pretty, it was rocky, it was ugly, and it was sometimes the most harshest conditions you could possibly imagine with the heat in which he lived. It's kind of like Bakersfield kind of in the, in the summertime, right, in August. But he wasn't the, a man that grew up in paradise, he was the kind of man that grew up in very harsh conditions and it made him a very rugged man in that sense. And you'll see the biblical characters like that. They're very rugged. Uh, even the Lord, I mean, the Lord, he, he slept outside all the time. They traveled. They're very rugged men. You know, it wasn't because, you know, um, they chose that. It was just the way their life was. And so it actually created a, a, a toughness in them. But anyway... One of the principles that you're going to see with Elijah and what we have to see with us is you must be willing to bear the crucible if we are to be what God wants us to be. And the crucible or the, 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 the place where that you smelt gold or silver and then you smelt it and you heat that thing up so hot that it purifies it and then what happens at the top is you can see the dross. That's what he's doing to Elijah to prepare him for more difficult times. And so as you heat that fire up and you heat that metal, this is what rises to the top. That's dross. And so what you would do in metallurgy, you'd take that dross off to make sure you had a purified metal or gold or silver or whatever you were using. And basically, that's what the testing that Elijah's going to do and the testing for us is going to do for us. It gets rid of the impurities in us so that we become more like Christ. But further than that, that then we can be used for hard times. Because these soy boy guys, they're not going to be able to minister to people when times are tough. They're not going to be able to help other people because they're, they're weak and anemic and spiritually they can only take care of themselves. And so there's a problem with them. So here's the thing. You have to be willing to go through the crucible. 
You have to be willing to take this on voluntarily and let God break you and break you of your impurities. And that way you can help in any situation that comes to your, to your plate with your family, with your community, and with your friends. Okay, so now with that stage set, let's look at what God does with him. It's a fascinating story. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now, I've I've said this before in studying Elijah, and I'm going to say it again. If you're at a place where God is providing, like the brook Kareth, the ravens were feeding him, but slowly and surely every day that brook started to dry up because of the drought that, that Elijah prophesied. So that brook was drying up. Your job as a spiritual leader, is to know when to move locations as you see the brook dry up. You don't just keep staying there and watching the brook dry up and not make a move. If you're seeing the brook dry up, that's a signal to you that I need to make different plans. I need to, I need to look elsewhere. So I seek God's will to find out, okay, where do you want me to go next? So whether it's your job, whether it's family members and and your relationship with them and that brook is drying up with them because they simply won't stop what they're doing or your job, the brook is drying up and you can see the handwriting on the wall and and God is saying, are you going to move or are you going to stay till they fire you? Are you going to move and and, and do the ESG? Are you going to move and and do the DIE, the diversity uh, inclusion equity? Are you seeing the brook dry up? So if you see the brook dry up, it's time for you to leave. But you just don't go anywhere. You go where God tells you to go. And that's the hardest thing is to realize he's asking you to change location, whatever that might be. So the brook dries up. So Elijah, his provision is gone. He's going to have to go someplace to get water because he's the one who shut off the water for three years. Okay. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Saying, so here's the thing. You don't go off on your own direction. And the brook dries up. You wait for the Lord's direction and the word of God will come to you. If you're truly seeking his will, you're seeking your own will. You won't have the word of God come to you. So he will speak to you saying, arise, go to Zarephath. And Zarephath means refinery. Okay. This is where we get the word crucible. So the, the, the name Zareph, Zarephath means the crucible or the refinery where metal is melted and the impurities are, come out. So that tells you what's going to happen as he goes there. Okay, You're going to be refined. So the next level, you've seen my provision. Now I'm taking you somewhere else where you're going to be refined even more, which belongs to Sidon which means the hunting, and dwell there. Now, wait a second. Sidon, the hunting. What's happening to him? He's being hunted by Jezebel. Remember? She can't stand him. Okay? So he's, he's going to a place, and as he goes to this place, he is going to be hunted. And he's told that you're going to dwell there. So let me show you on a map. He's at the Brook Kareth right there, and this is the, the Transjordan area. And that's, this is a place where he's safe from 
Jezebel. So now he's asking him, I need you to go down there and go all the way up to Zarephath in Phoenicia. And so what is he going to do? By doing this and leaving the area, he is exposing himself to threats from Jezebel. They find out he's making a move in the land of Israel. Jezebel will kill him. And then he's being told, you're going to go to Zarephath. Well, guess what? Zarephath is in Sidon, which is not Israeli control. That area right up there is controlled by the Phoenicians. And he's going into hostile Gentile territory that worships Baal in that territory. That is, by the way, the region where Jezebel came from. Jezebel's name is Baal for the worship of Baal. So he's actually taking Elijah to her home state to do something on a big magnitude. So there's a big complex here of God versus Baal in the whole story, okay? But what is he asking him to do? And then I want you to stay there. What? I thought you just want me to pass through. No, no, I, you, I, you need to stay here in a foreign country, in a foreign land among uh, the Phoenicians, among Baal worshipers, and you're going to stay. Now, that's a test in and of itself. So he could be killed on the journey, but, but to stay at a place you don't want to be? Yeah, that's part of the crucible. In order to break you and I, he will put you in a place that you don't like. And he will break you in that place. And I guarantee you, you've been to places that you don't like. And you have to stay longer than you wanted to stay, didn't you? And it felt like a prison, didn't it? I couldn't wait to get out. I felt like I was in prison. I felt that all, everything around me was intended to do me harm. Okay, And you might have felt that. That's where he's putting him at. Okay, so what's the principle? The place that God wants us to be will involve high-risk situations. He could get killed. Jezebel could find him. He's in Baal territory. So this is not a mistake that God tells him to do this. So when you're looking at how God leads you, he may lead you into the very thing that puts you at risk for something. Maybe at risk for losing money, maybe at risk of your reputation, maybe physical risk, I don't know. But in order to grow you, you can't stay back on the spiritual couch and think you're going to grow. He's got to put you in threatening situations to see how you react. And the reaction will tell you everything about what's in your character. Okay. Then he tells them this, see, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. You're like, what's the big deal? This is a big deal. The widow, number one, is not Israeli. She's a Gentile. She's a widow, which, and, and she means she's part of the underclass on the social rung. So a widow is going to be there, lower rung of the social class, 
Um, and she, he's going to find out she has no money, by the way, too. So that doesn't help the situation. And she will provide for you. Now, I want you to think about this. This is going to a bigger issue. First, at the brook Kareth, he was given water by the brook. No problem there. But how was he fed? By ravens. And a raven is an unclean bird. A raven is that which is rejected by any kosher Jew. And God is forcing Elijah to accept God's provision through a raven. That you must take what I give to you in any form or fashion. I give it to you. And don't reject the form or fashion. So Elijah has learned that lesson. He was fed by ravens. Now he's going to be fed by a Gentile woman who's a widow with no money. You talk about humbling, that's worse than being fed by a raven in his world. A man is now dependent on a woman that's a Gentile. That's, the, that's it, man. That's the worst in his situation you could possibly get. What do you mean I'm going to be fed by a Phoenician woman. That's absurd that any Jewish man, especially a prophet, would be fed that way. But what is it? It's a crucible principle. God will force us to take the provision from our own rejected environments, our own rejected situations, and the people in order to humble us. And that's the crucible. That's very difficult. And most people won't pass this test. Will you accept the provision of God from people you don't like? Will you accept the situation in your life that's totally beneath you? Are you okay with that? That that he provides, but in order to get the provision, you have to get it from that which is beneath you. You 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 want a job? How about this job cleaning toilets at the, at, the, at the local movie theater? Well, it puts food on the table. Yeah, so you're going to have to clean toilets. Is it too beneath you to clean toilets? You see what he, what, how God will do that to you? Why does he do that to you? To humble you. Because you're too arrogant and you're too prideful to be used in another level of ministry. So he's going to say, fine. I'll humble you. And this is how I'm going to humble you. I'm going to see if you'll do this. And I, here's, how, here's how he humbled me a long time ago when I was early on in ministry. Would I teach to simply just a few people? Would that be beneath me? And so the first year of ministry, I was teaching just a, a few people, five people here, three people here, and, and I was saying, I don't get this, man. I am studying for hours upon hours upon hours upon hours, and no one shows up. And I'm like, this is not worth it. So the Lord said, well, what's the number, Brandon, that it would be worth it for you to study? Oh, you see the game that I was playing? Well, I don't know. Uh, what do you need, 2,000? What do you need, 100? What do you need, 50? What is it? I need somebody, Brandon, 
that's willing to teach one person. And if you're not willing to teach one person, I can't use you. Thank you. I needed that humbling. And I had to learn that early on. That, look, dude, nothing's beneath you. You know what the first, the first day I got into ministry, what I did? I think, I thought, oh man, I'm just going to go and, and teach and preach and, and do counseling and all this stuff. You know what I did the first day I got into ministry? I cleaned the closet out. Yeah, no joke. I cleaned the closet. And you know what? The first day of ministry, I thought, I said, what am I doing? I went to seminary. I got all this stuff, this knowledge. I'm ready to pour out. And the first thing is my boss, uh, Rich Paradis, he says, come help me clean out this closet. And then we're going to clean out these cupboards. And I spent the day cleaning out a closet. I'm like, I, I didn't sign up for this. And, and so God says, oh, yes, you did. Because if you're not willing to clean out closets, you can't minister to my people. Thank you. So the crucible is going to come to you like this. And it's, it's something that you, you, you think is beneath you. And God's saying, it's not beneath you. Get on your hands and knees and do it right now. Take what the widow from Sidon offers you. Oh. Because here's the thing. If you're going to handle what's coming... You're going to have to humble yourself in order to deal with this. Otherwise, you'll fly off the handle and go crazy and flip out because they're going to be taking things from you. You have to be humble enough saying, fine, take what you need to take. If you want my coat, I'll give you my coat too. You can't freak out. Nothing's beneath you because you might have to work at a job that you don't have now that might, it might you see, well, we got this janitor job and... You're going to have to do that to support your family. Oh. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow with what was there gathering sticks, just as the Lord told him. So he comes into that play, but watch what happens in this play. And he called to her and said, please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. Now, you, you're going to think, well, he just gets on the spot and starts ordering around, but it, it's, it's more of a cultural thing. Um, remember Jesus with the woman at the well? He asked the same thing. Can you give me a cup of water? It actually was a compliment. It's a compliment when Jesus did that to the Samaritan woman because no Jew would ever talk to a Samaritan woman. And in this situation, the fact that Elijah will talk to a Gentile woman and ask her for a drink is actually a compliment to her. So Elijah is working with the plan. He's understanding that he can't look over his nose at her. Okay? So this is a compliment. And, then, and as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So he's hungry and he's thirsty because he's made a long trip. And you've seen the, how long the trip was. Okay, so she said, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Whoa! It's that bad. Yeah, it's that bad. You came upon a scene, Elijah, that 
you were told by God that he, you're going to be prepared, uh, uh, provided for. And the woman has just told you, I'm making our last meal. And then after that, my son and I are going to starve to death. So that's when that's, you've come upon that scene. That will be the most perplexing thing in your life is he's going to ask you to go there and you're going to get there and you're like, well, where's the provision? And it's going to be minuscule and it's going to be like, you know, something real small. And you're like, this is not enough. Right. It's not enough. So what's God going to do to prove to you? What does he have to do? Okay, let's watch this. Crucible principle. The test is whether, wrong weather, sorry, the spell check put the wrong word. It's weather, W-E-T-H-E-R, not the weather. Uh, we can, whether we can preserve with less provision than before and face the situation with faith in God's provision. Oh, well, that's not fun. No, it's not. But what, what have we been saying by looking at current events and looking at the news and all this stuff? They are destroying the economy, okay? They are printing off money faster than people leaving a Yoko Ono concert, okay? That's fast. And when you print off that money, your money is not worth anything, right? And so when you print that off, like they're doing, your value is going down. They crash the economy. If you go to a digital currency, all this other stuff, they go green, put you in a 15-minute city. Your money is going to go down. That's the crucible. Can you function still with less money, less provision than you have now? You have to learn that. Can you do with less? Well, Brandon, you don't understand. I have all these bills. I'm sorry. But they're going to do this to economy, the economy. You better learn how to adjust with less. You better figure out your lifestyle now before it hits you. And that's the call to ministry. And we're all called to ministry. The call to ministry doesn't include money. It does, it does include provision, but just enough to get by. It doesn't make you wealthy. So if you're going to follow Jesus in the storm... It's not a vow to poverty. It's just a realization that you won't be making the money that you're probably worth in the world. And that has to be okay with you in order to adjust. If you can't adjust to the crucible of less provision, then you're not going to make it. You're going to flip out. So again, I'll give you stories out of my own life. Um. You go into ministry, and you know you don't expect to get rich in ministry, but then when you really see what you're paid, you're like, wow, I'm really not going to make any money. And it's a shock. It's a real shock. And I'm like, okay, well, you wanted to go in ministry. Yeah, I know, but my goodness, I didn't expect this amount. Um, and it's really low. It's lower than even what I was making in the outside world. And that's a shock to you. And so again, the first year of ministry, and I'm talking 20-something years ago, 23, 24 years ago, I'm thinking, what did I sign up for? But, but I'm, I'm 27 years old 
at that point, you know. So I'm, I'm dumb and naive and don't understand a lot of things. And so the first thing God said, are you, well, you said you were going to serve me. You even went to seminary. So are you going to serve me or, or not serve me because they're not paying you enough? Okay, lesson learned. I'll serve you with whatever I have to make. That was hard because it came to the realization is I'm not going to be able to do and have the things that I had dreamed of having or doing or whatever. And so those kind of dreams kind of go out of, out of the way. And I'm telling you, what's coming our way is you're going to have to modify your lifestyle. There's no other way around this. And if you think you were going to have this, this golden parachute retirement, it's not happening. And I think if people don't get prepared for that mentally and, and financially, they're going to hit the wall. And I know what happens to people, and you do too, when they hit the wall financially. They go into depression and they commit suicide. Remember, all these crashes cause people to commit suicide because they can't handle it. So you got this going on. Anyway, and Elijah said to her, do not fear. So Elijah's already learned the, te- the lesson on this one. Go and do as I have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterwards, make some, of your, uh, some for yourself and your son. Now you're thinking, you can read this on the surface and say, well, why, why is he self-serving? Why, why, why give Elijah the first meal? Why not give the meal first to the son and then the wife or vice versa? Why serve Elijah first? Because Elijah is a typology of God. And the first thing you do to receive God's permission, uh, provision is you must give back to him what belongs to him, Right? So even the Syrophoenician, sorry, not Syro, the Sidonian woman is being taught a lesson. If you want help, you first must give to God back what belongs to you, and that's what, that's how He helps you. So she's learning a spiritual lesson here. Okay. For thus says the Lord God of Israel: the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain on the earth. So for the whole three, three years, three and a half years, this will continue to happen on a daily basis. And God will provide on a daily basis your provision. Nothing more, nothing less. In essence, it's like going back to the manna. How much did God provide? Only enough for that day. If you took too much more, it rotted on you. If you tried to save it, remember it would rot. So what God was teaching Israel and what he's teaching this Gentile woman is, I will give you enough for today in your provision. Are you okay with that? And that's where you have to be in his daily provision. What does the Lord's uh, prayer say about daily provision? Give us today our daily bread. It's a daily provision. That's all he wants us to, to understand by faith. Okay. So she went away, did according to the word of Elijah, and she and, her, and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. So a miracle kept happening. Every day, a miracle happened for them. Okay, great. Now, you're going to get hit with even more. 
So the crucible principle in this is faith in the Lord's provision allows you the confidence that what you may look at uh, like an impossible, a possible situation for man is possible for the Lord. That's what he's teaching the woman and Elijah at the same time. It may look impossible how we're going to eat for all this time. We'll all do a miracle. So Elijah has passed the test, but this test was for the woman too to understand that the Lord is the living God that can provide food and sustain life. Why is that such a big deal? Because on the global scale, at this time, they believed Baal had died because of the lack of rain. Baal was a thunder god that brought rain and fertility. So God is proving to this Gentile woman that worships Baal, Baal is dead. I'm the living God, and I make things happen. I can sustain life. So you must trust me. So this is a big evangelism thing that's happening in this area. Okay. Jesus, in referring to salvation, said this, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. And so that's the truth about not only salvation, but impossible situations that you put yourself in. Okay. So with this impossible situation, here's what you have to think about. What is your story? Okay. With God. And what do I mean by that? As you can see, Elijah is very confident that the Lord will do this. And how did he know it? Because of the test with the raven and the water at the brook Karabith. So when you are going through this, you must look at your history. I said this last night at Bible study on Wednesday. In order to increase your faith in what God will provide, you have to discern what your history is with him. So if Elijah's leaning back on the ravens feeding him, that gives him the confidence for the New Test. What is giving you the confidence for his provision going forward what has he done with you through your life so like i've said last night what you have to look at in your history is god how god has provided for you all the way through and if you can mark those things down that's how you increase your faith in that area and then you look through the bible obviously and you see all the provision that he makes for the believers as, as well and that is what increases faith So if you don't know your past, you don't know your history with God, you're lacking something. You have to know that history. Anyway, in order to do that and know that history and be able to be a spiritual leader in the next phase of life, you're going to have to be able to walk the walk to talk the talk. Because if you have never experienced God's miraculous provision, how are you going to lead somebody? You talk to Steve right here, he's our missionary to Malawi. This guy walks the walk and he talks the talk. He knows how it is, what it's like to have nothing and then God provide for him. He's a living ministry, a missionary right in front of you that, that walks the walk and talks the talk. You have to be able to state those things in order to have that kind of confidence that Elijah says, God's going to provide and he's going to do this and he's going to do that and he's going to do that. Don't worry about anything. You see how confident Elijah is with that? That's the same confidence Steve has. Ask Steve about provision. And and listen to what he will say, 
how confident he is in the Lord to provide. It's amazing. It's not theory for him. He lives it. That's the kind of leaders we're going to need from all of you going forward. You have to walk the walk. It's not enough that you know about theory. So this is a big deal for all of us. So the crucible principle is obedience on a daily basis. What, what did he tell her to do? She went and she did. That's all she did, right? Obedience to the commands. Uh, obedience on a daily basis to the simplest of commands can lead to God doing the impossible. So obedience is often required before provision. So you think, well, what's the big obedience God's asking me to do? Whatever he's asking you today to do, what are you supposed to do today? That's all you're responsible in your obedience to be. What are you supposed to do? If you've been lazy today, you weren't obedient. If you didn't do something you should have done, committed a sin of omission, you weren't obedient. Or maybe you were crossed the line somewhere. I don't know. We all sin in, in thought, word, and deed. But the issue then is, can you be obedient in a few things? Can you just say, when Elijah said, go there, and she goes. Now do this, and she does it. Can you just do the simple things? If you can do simple things, then when he asks you for the big obedience, you should be able to do that based on the small obedience. That's how it goes. Now, here's the te- another test. Now, it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So he dies. The, boy, the little boy dies. doesn't say why. So she said to Elijah, what, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to bring, me, uh, bring my sentence to remembrance and to kill my son? Whoa. So what happens here? The very person he has been ministering to, and she saw the miracle, turns on him like a sheep-killing dog. Are you okay with that? Because that will happen to you. The very people that you minister to, and let me add this, and that you spend the most time with, and you give the most resources to, and you, you give all your stuff to this, these, per, these people, will be the very one that stabs you in the back. And you have to be okay of pulling the knife out of your back and keep going. Because it's going to happen to you. The very people you help and the very the ones that you help the most will betray you. Guaranteed. You must know that going into the game. So you've been warned. So she turns on him after having the miracle right in front of her. He did it through the Lord. She turns on him. And what is she saying? She's saying, have you come to just kill my son? Have you come? And basically she's doing this thing that uh, in the ancient world, they believe that uh, sickness or death was the result of somebody's sin. And so she's saying, you bring my sin to remember, you bring in my past sins up to, to execute me, uh, my son for my, what I've done. And so that's a, kind of a, a Job's uh, friend's thinking, but that's how the Middle East thought. And so she's bringing that up. She's blaming him, blaming God for the death of her son. Now, wait a second. This woman has just saw a miracle, a grade A miracle. 
And when this happens to her, the death of her son, it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter. It, it switches a gear in her. You must get used to people flipping on you if you're going to survive in doing ministry. They will flip on you. They will turn on you. And you have to be okay with that. You have to grow thick skin. You really do. Now, what happens? Look how he responded to her. And he said to her, give me your son. Notice what Elijah doesn't do. He didn't say, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. I just did a miracle for you. You ingrate. Yada, yada, yada. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't argue theologically with her. Now, you know good and well God didn't do this. You know it's from the fall. Don't blame God and don't blame me. He didn't do any of that. You know why? He doesn't need to. She knows she's not thinking straight. And most people don't think straight on the death of a loved one. So he doesn't even get into the argument. Don't even go there when someone turns on you. Just leave it alone. So what he does, he says, give me your son. Because he knows that the Lord can do something and do the impossible. So now, not only is the Lord Yahweh the sustainer of life, he's going to prove through Elijah that, uh, that Yahweh can bring life out of death in resurrection. Okay, so he took, he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you, you also brought tragedy on this widow with whom I lodge? By killing her son. So this is his real statement. Is this your will that you have taken this little boy's life? Is that what this is about? Well, it is in some sense. But it's to prove something about God. Okay? And he stretched himself out on the child three times. And cried out to the Lord and said, Oh Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And so he's he's resurrected, basically. Now, a couple things here. Now we needed to go into a deep dive. So now God has done a a bigger miracle of bringing life out out of death. I not only can sustain life, I bring life out of death. And Baal is dead. So God is showing on a cosmic level that he is the one true God. That has life in him. There is no other gods. Okay. And he's doing it on their territory. Where Jezebel came. So you see the cosmic uh, uh, fight here. Here's the interesting thing. They believed in the ancient world. That wherever that God was located. That's where his power resided. That if, if a God went outside of his country. Then he had no power. And God is saying. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I can go anywhere in this world because it's my world and I can do my power outside the boundaries of Israel, for goodness sake. And that's because he's the one true God. But see, that, that blew their mind as, as gen, uh, Gentiles worshiping Baal. Okay, what else is going on here? There's something more dramatic that's happening. Why does he lay spread out over the child and pray three times? I mean, this is literally what the Hebrew is saying he did. 
If this is the position that he took and laid on the dead child three different times and prayed for him. Do you see it? It's a picture of the crucifix, isn't it? See, Elijah in the story is playing the role of Jesus. Oh, and by the way, Jesus will also go to a Gentile woman who's a widow, the widow of Nain, and they're having a funeral procession and taking her dead son out. And Jesus runs into them and he heals the Gentile widow's woman son. The same that Elijah did. Why? It's a picture of God reaching out to the Gentiles and showing the Jews that they're not just the only people that he's, that he's going to save. He's saving the whole world. So Elijah is a picture of Messiah. Now follow this. Let's look at the dead boy typology here. First, he identifies with him in death. Elijah identifies with the boy in death by laying in a crucifix position over the boy. You see that picture, how he's laying over? So he's identifying in death as Messiah identifies with us in death for, by dying for our sins. You know, think about this. The, the, the crown of thorns on Messiah's head is a real crown of thorns, but what does it symbolize? It symbolizes he's the king of the sinners. Now, he's not a sinner, but he took on the sins of the sinners. The thorns go back to the penalty given to Adam. Remember that in Genesis? The ground you will have to work by the sweat of your brow and it will produce thorns and thistles because of the sin you committed. So when Messiah has wrapped around him a crown of thorns, he is identifying with you and I in the sin. That's what Elijah's, that's the first thing Elijah's doing. Second, Elijah's body or, or, or his person or his life, whatever you want to call it, is the vehicle for the miracle to bring the boy back to life. That's why he's doing it. It's like a sacrifice, him laying down on the boy. Elijah's body is going to be used for that sacrifice to communicate uh, the life transfer. Well, it's the same thing with Messiah, right? His person, his life, becomes the miracle that gives us life through his death. It's Messiah's person. It's his body, right? Three, he prays three times as Jesus prays three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus prays three times on the cross. There are seven sayings on the cross, but three only address the Father. And how many times does Elijah pray? Three times. So Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane three times, and he prays on the cross to the Father three times. You see the match? Father, forgive them. My God, my God. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Those are the three prayers on the cross. It fits the pattern with Elijah. Fourth, Elijah is transferring his life from himself to the dead boy by laying on him. That's the transfer that happens on the cross, right? Through his death, we have life. 
Elijah is between heaven and earth as a mediator. Do you see it? How is Elijah between heaven and earth? Is Elijah on the ground? He's on the boy and he's on his own bed. So that means he's above earth. He's not touching the ground. You see that? So Elijah is in, in, is, is in between earth and he's in between heaven. He stands right in, he's, he's laying right in the middle of heaven and earth. Now, if we raise him straight up and we put him, we put the cross, what is the cross? Is a, a way of putting Messiah above earth and below heaven. You see that? He is the cosmic joiner of heaven and earth through the mediatorship of the Messiah himself who stands between earth and heaven in the position of Jacob's ladder. You see that? It's amazing. And so Elijah positions himself off the earth and under heaven. It's amazing. Elijah is a per, uh, 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 precursor of the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder because he's the conduit of life from heaven to those on earth. And Jesus is that conduit which, for, for life to come to us on earth. It's a picture of this. Seven, notice that Elijah's arrival was misunderstood by the woman. Have you come to destroy us? You, you reveal my sins and kill my son and kill me. Is that what you're here to do? Remember, in the first coming, they misunderstood his arrival, didn't they? And, they, and the woman still doesn't understand the arrival, what she, he's here for. No, lady, I'm here to give you life. I'm here to sustain life. And that's the same, that's the same message. Eight, Yahweh hears the prayers of Elijah and resurrects the son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you read that, the rest of the passage, that's Psalm 22. At the end of Psalm 22, towards the end, God does hear the Messiah and he resurrects the Messiah in three days. That's what Psalm 22 is talking about. So when Jesus prays Psalm 22, he knows that because he's been obedient and did the right thing, that he will, the son will be resurrected because of that. So you have the same thing. And the last thing I wanted to point out is Yahweh, through Elijah, takes the initiative against death and overcoming death in order to give life. It's a total picture of Jesus raising that little boy back to life. It's amazing. It's amazing how you can see the typology in Jesus all through this. So anyway, how does the story end? And Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, now by this, I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Oh, that's the reason he brought him there. Is the fact that this message will spread all through the Gentiles in Sidon. That God did this. 
It's the same thing that happened with Jesus as he healed these Gentiles, the centurion, the Sidonian boy. It will spread among the Gentiles, that the Jewish Messiah also saves the Gentiles as well. But let's get back to you and I. Do you want to be known in the days ahead to be a man of God, like Elijah? You don't have to be a prophet. You just have to obey. Do you want to be known as a man of God who speaks the truth? Okay? If you do, you must go through the crucible. You must be willing to do what Elijah did in order to be that person that people can trust, that when they hear you, they say, that guy speaks the truth. I can listen to that guy. That's, that's what we all want to be, especially in a time of so many lies out there. They, they, they have to hear a voice of truth. Then, if that's the case, accept the crucible and let God shape you into the Elijah that he needs for this time period. Accept the crucible. Take it upon you and go with it. And you will be that man of God who speaks the truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for what we can learn through Elijah's life, an amazing typology of Jesus. Wow. But help us to do what we need to do, Father. What, what you took Elijah through, you're taking us through. Prepare for these, these crazy times that we're in, these last days. Father, give us the strength to accept the crucible, to sacrifice, to do what we need to do to become what you want us to be. And bless us now as we go in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.